0: Welcome
1: to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
2: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. Hey Justin, how are you?
0: I am doing great. I just got back from San Francisco, was there for a conference and couchsurfed for a few days, had a fantastic time, really enjoyed the city, really learned a lot, biked around a bit. It was absolutely beautiful. How about you, Seth? Things here are
1: going really well, jobs just hanging in there, you know, good stuff. Time just seems to fly by really, really fast. I think that once you get out of college and you just start living the real world, it's time just starts speeding up. Have you found that at all, Justin? You, I guess you're still in college.
0: Well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm at a university, but I really work two jobs in a sense. So I'm a research assistant, and so I have a lot of tasks related to the research I'm doing. And then on top of that, I have a lot of work as the sustainability coordinator here. In the student union at University of British Columbia, so both of those together really do make it into far more than a real world job. It's it's pretty all consuming lifestyle. All is good, and we still have time to put out a podcast every so often.
1: And who are we talking to today, Justin?
0: So today is an incredibly special episode of the Extra Environmentalist. In fact, is it? Is it?
1: Who yes. who are we interviewing?
0: Yeah, if if I had uh, drums, I would totally play them right now wait should i go get my drum and play it i think you should and our guest is dennis mckenna yes we are very excited to have dennis mckenna on this time to discuss the life he had with his brother Terrence McKenna. And it's an unbelievable insight into a fascinating man. Who is Terrence McKenna, Seth?
1: Well, Terrence McKenna has been a large part of this podcast. I mean, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you hear Terrence speaking in the beginning of the clip where he talks about the origin of the extra environmentalist who we thought until very recently was a phrase coined by dennis mckenna
0: terence's views on society and culture are unbelievably valuable to both seth and i and those views very much shaped our desire to put this podcast together we've listened to hours and hours of terence mckenna talks uh how many hours do you estimate you've listened to set
1: the psychedelic salon is up to what like episode 300 and something right now yeah and what probably and half
0: of those are Terrence talks
1: and lorenzo really likes playing terence mckenna talks so i would say yeah a good good chunk of those episodes are McKenna. Terrence mckenna and if you've mm-hmm. never listened to Terrence mckenna I would highly recommend that you check out some of those talks.
0: It's very entertaining, uh, to say the least, and very fascinating, and it will change the way you look at the world. But I would say out of those episodes, probably most of them are an hour and a half or two hours, so there's probably like 300 hours, roughly. That's probably a small
1: chunk of what he's put together in his in his life, and he's, he's written books as well. But we are not talking to Terrence today, we are talking to Terrence's probably one of the closest people in Terence's life his brother Dennis
0: and Dennis is a fascinating researcher who co-authored the book Invisible Landscape with his brother Terence and accompanied Terence on his journey into the Amazonian rainforest where they discovered the visionary plants that shaped their views and ended up changing the world in a lot of ways. Terrence and his brother through their work on the time wave theory, which postulated that as time moved forward, we were approaching this grand attractor called the eschaton. So that's a fancy word for essentially the end of what we know as time. And at that point, everything was accelerating. Novelty was accelerating. By novelty, it means unexpected things, new combinations of things that you've never seen.
1: Increasing complexity.
0: Yeah, increasing complexity. And so we've seen that, we've seen that with technology, we've seen that with the acceleration of the way things change, globalization, the internet, iPhones, all of the gadgets we use, but we're seeing that even more so at a societal level. And it's pretty hard to look back at what we've had so far of 2011 and 2010 and even 2009 and not say that the important things that are happening on the world stage are absolutely, appear to be, accelerating. And so what Terrence and his brother were saying was that in 2012, these things would reach this catalyst. And in speaking with Dennis, it's definitely clear that far too much focus was put on the date of 2012. But the important thing is that Dennis and Terrence absolutely appear to have some substance to their theory as novelty absolutely appears to be increasing.
1: It's very interesting that two men 20 plus years ago were able to pretty accurately point in the direction that humanity was going to go make that prediction that these technological advances and ways of humans relating to one another would really take the forefront in this time that we live in right now.
0: And so we're really excited to speak with Dennis today because he's working on a Kickstarter project which we'll link to in the show notes and talk about a bit in the conversation itself, where he's aiming to get funded to write a book about his life with Terence. And Dennis is the only person who can tell this story in the way it, it needs to be told, because he was there from the beginning. He and Terrence went to the rainforest, had this experience together, wrote The Invisible Landscape, and then Dennis went on and has a career in in science, whereas his brother swore science and said you know let's stay away from science and and while they both recognize it for their limitations they both took relatively different paths uh, as they moved forward from that incredible experience in, in the Amazon.
1: They did. And if you've ever had a brother or somebody who lived very close to you and grew up with you, you know the kind of sometimes antagonistic relationships that can develop and the kind of uh, rivalries and those kind of relationships and how that where that those can lead. Terrence and Dennis had that growing up, but later as they grew older they became more of collaborators on these theories that they later postulated and collaborated on books. Dennis was very much integral in Terence's formulation of his thoughts and acted as a sounding board for Terence and was very important in the creation of these large grandiose theories that Terence later postulated throughout his career
0: and so if you ever listen to Terence McKenna or knew anything about him this is an absolute must listen for you but even if you haven't you're going to hear the story of two men that ventured into the jungle, found something completely unexpected that changed their lives and has changed the courses of other people's lives. And so that's why we're really looking forward to uh, today's discussion.
1: Hey, Justin, do you think that your parents would let you go off into the Amazonian rainforest at the age of 20?
0: I don't know it's definitely fascinating thing to think of but and maybe um, send
1: you a a check every month so that you could (laughs) further your explorations in this in the south american jungles
0: well i I told them i was going to canada and they let me go here so all all is good canada's kind of like the jungle
1: (laughs) get ready to listen to a very amazing interview with uh one of our heroes and hopefully maybe one of yours one day too catch you on the other side We're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're interviewing Dennis McKenna about his Kickstarter project, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss.
0: Dennis McKenna, you're an ethnopharmacologist studying visionary plants for more than 20 years, and in 1975, you co-authored the book Invisible Landscape with your brother Terrence McKenna. You graduated with your PhD in 1984 from the University of British Columbia, where I'm currently a graduate student, and since that time, you've conducted extensive ethnobotanical fieldwork in the Peruvian, Colombian, and Brazilian Amazon, and authored over 30 scientific papers, and in 1993, you joined the Aveda Corporation as a senior research pharmacologist and since 2001 you've been with the faculty of the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota and today we're here to talk about your Kickstarter project the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss so is there anything <laughs> we can add or change in, in that bio?
3: No, that's, that's all pretty much accurate. Uh, I've been in studying visionary plants really for about 40 years since Terrence and I went to the Amazon in 1971, but I've been studying them from a scientific, more a scientific academic perspective for, I'd say, 30 years because as a graduate student in, in, at UBC in 1981, I went back to the Amazon 10 years after La Churrera. And part of my motivation for doing that was to, for one thing, prove to myself I could go back and you know do actual uh, ethnopharmacological research on on ayahuasca. And that's what I ended up doing. It was more I mean it was maybe more boring than La Churrera, but it was also more uh, you know more solid research. And that really gave me my foundation in science and whatever claim to respectability I have grew out of that. My supervisor at UBC was Dr. Neil Towers in the Department of Botany, and he was a fantastic mentor and friend and just an amazing person.
1: I'm interested in the time that you were just talking about when you and your brother went to the jungle in 1971. Uh, I think you guys are 20 years old and he was 24, so really pretty young guys. Uh what sparked that trip and what made you even decide to go in the first place?
3: Well, that's a good question. I guess basically what sparked the trip uh, were multiple factors. We were we were children of the 60s. I mean, we grew up, you know, Timothy Leary was at the height of his public career at that time, uh, the hippie thing was going on, the countercultural movement, and there was a lot of excitement around psychedelics and a lot of people taking psychedelics. And we were we were among those. And But what really got us interested was that we stumbled on DMT, which was not that prevalent at that time. And we had experiences with that, and we decided that my God, this is of a whole other order. I mean, this just isn't your regular, you know, run of the mill ba- basement bathtub psychedelic. This is this is something else. And so we were fascinated by that as longtime science fiction nuts and and uh, you know, at, uh, and techno enthusiasts, and you know, the DMT experience seemed to us to be a whole other level of. Of strangeness, and we thought this is absolutely the most the the strangest thing that we've ever experienced, and maybe the strangest thing ever. And so we thought, well, you know, we need to look into this. Nothing else is going on that's, that's that interesting. You know, I mean, we had Vietnam, we had you know all these other things happening on the social level, but we just thought this really bears investigation. And so we decided to pursue it and and one of the things we found about DMT was it, it, the experience was so short and so overwhelming that it was hard to bring much back from it right and so we thought what we need to do is find a way to prolong this experience so that you can get your sea legs in there and really explore this dimension and we happened to stumble on a paper by Schultes at that time called uh, Ari Schultes the famous Harvard ethnobotanist who is well known to People with an interest in these entheogenic in plants, and it, the title of it was "Varola as an orally active hallucinogen." Varola is a genus of trees from the Amazon that they used to make snuffs from. And the reason they do that is because DMT is not orally active by itself. If you eat it, nothing happens unless you combine it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is which inhibits the enzymes in in your gut that break DMT down, and this is the basis of ayahuasca, the two plants, one of which contains DMT and the other contains beta-carbolines, which are these alkaloids that, that inhibit MAO. They're very potent monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and I suppose everybody already knows this, so I'm repeating myself, but we thought, wow, you know, if this orally active Ukuhe, this virola preparation, as it was called by the Watoto Ukuhe, really is an orally active form of DMT, then we should investigate it. And at the time, it wasn't even clear among ethnobotanists that ayahuasca contained DMT. That information kind of came out later. The, the other aspect of it was what we found in the counterculture was that there was really no tradition there was no knowledge there was no context in which to put the psychedelic experience and but there was a whole indigenous tradition and which we discovered largely through the the writings of carlos castaneda you know who's now been somewhat discredited but i think his first book uh, the teachings of don juan was more credible, and that really sort of brought it to our attention that, you know, if you want to learn about psychedelics, don't talk to Timothy Leary and those people. They don't know anything about it. You know, it's a totally alien thing in our culture. Talk to the people that have been using it for a few thousand years. They probably have learned a few things. And so that was our motivation. We, we basically decided that we needed to do this uh, to investigate DMT so when we went to La Chirera, when we finally got down to La Churrera, and why did we go to La Chirera? Well, we went to La Chirera because that is the population epicenter of the Witoto uh, people and what's left of them. And they were the people that had this Ukuhe, as they called it. So we said, we have to go to La Chirera if we want to find this thing. When we actually got down there, it proved somewhat more difficult to find than we thought eventually we did find it turned out to be kind of disappointing when we did find it but what well, we did and actually i didn't we didn't find it till 10 years later uh, in a totally different place but when we got to la chereira what we found was the place had been cleared for pastures. There was about 400 acres of pastures around this tiny mission village, and they brought in Cebu cattle, and literally out of every cow pie were growing huge clusters of these psilocybin mushrooms, you know, big, beautiful specimens of psilocybin cubensis. And we knew what they were, but we didn't understand what was going on. We, we did not take them seriously. We thought, oh, great, there are all these mushrooms here we'll have lots to do and we can have lots of fun until the real mystery reveals itself you know and so we started munching on these things pretty regularly and what soon became clear was that they were the real mystery they not ukuhe, but psilocybin is the perfect orally active form of dmt
0: Certain kinds of teachings, certain kinds of ideas become accessible to people only at certain moments, at very difficult periods. These are not the ordinary kind of ideas that you can get at any time and any moment. Quite the opposite. The very fact that we can have these ideas shows that it is an extremely difficult time. It would have been much easier to work with these ideas say 30 or 40 years ago, but in reality, one thing depends on another, for if times were not so difficult, we would not have had these ideas. So if we keep this in mind, even this realization alone will by itself bring us to the right attitude. It will always remind us that we have to take these ideas seriously, that nothing in relation to them can be taken from the point of view of ordinary likes and dislikes or ordinary attitudes of right and wrong. In present times, it is impossible to foretell what the future may bring. So we must have a particular appreciation and a particular regard for these ideas and the system and try not to do only what is right at a given moment, personally, individually, but what is right in connection with the whole thing, not merely think of personal aim, but of the whole tradition connected with all of our work.
4: Me, I was holding all of my secrets soft and hidden. You are listening
1: to The Extra Environmentalist and today we're interviewing Dennis McKenna about his Kickstarter project, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss.
0: So you went (laughs) to the jungle to to find this DMT substance and you ended up finding the mushroom which had a more profound
3: uh, effect in some ways? Yeah, much more profound, and and if you know anything about the chemistry, DMT and, and psilocybin or psilocin, which is the active version of, of psilocybin, psilocybin is converted in the body to psilocin, and molecularly, it's extremely close to DMT. I mean, it only differs by one atomic substitution on the ring, so it is effectively DMT. It's nature's perfectly formulated form of DMT. It's, as Terence used to say, it's made for man. It is totally compatible with human physiology. It's non-toxic. Our brains and, and livers and and the rest of our bodies are completely equipped to deal with this compound. You know, as far as the toxicity and metabolism issues are concerned, it's very... It's very safe. Where the danger comes in is that at high doses, in which we were taking, I and mean we started out with low doses, and when we gradually kind of moved into it, and at high doses, things just get really strange, really quickly. Uh, especially if you're taking it frequently, and that's what happens. So, so the. So I guess if there's a danger to it is at high doses of psilocybin, you know, the, the notion that there is this unseen world of not only entities, but sort of a, I don't know what you would call it, an, an ontological aspect of reality begins to become unmasked. All this information started pouring in.
0: How did the the native tribes to that area... Use those, yeah. yeah. Use those. They mushrooms. didn't
3: use it at all. They ah. didn't use it at all. It was not part of their tradition at all. And and we were actually not interfacing with the local people at all in in the first place. We were at this mission village, La Churrera run by the Capuchin uh, Missions, and they ran a school there for the local Witoto people, but most of the Witoto lived elsewhere, and when we got there, it wasn't the school year, so... Most of the Watoto were off in their own villages. There were very few indigenous people there, you know, because the parents come in to bring the kids and then they basically leave them. It's a boarding school. So there weren't that many Watoto people around. There was was the mission, you know, priests and nuns as a result, there were a lot of empty houses on the periphery of these pastures. So so when we got there, they gave us one of these empty houses. I mean, by a house, I mean a hut, you know, a pretty primitive thing. But you have to understand, I mean, when we showed up there, and believe me, uh, we were a colorful lot, the priests and the nuns were probably completely appalled you know but we were colorful and they'd never seen anything like it and so they they were kind they gave us this house on the periphery of the pasture and well away from the standard of the village, well away from places where any decent people were living, and basically hope for the best. You know, you know, didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know
1: I mean? you were probably just finishing high school at twenty, or, or a couple of years into college. Then
3: I was a um, junior in college. You know, how did you guys even decide to go? I mean,
1: did your parents probably had some say in that? You know, get, can we have some money, mom, so we can go down to South Africa and you know study some native tribes to South, South American,
3: America right well yeah you know I'm puzzled by that my my mom my mother had died just before we left she died in October 1970 God rest her soul because you know she didn't have to live through all this madness that followed but but uh, my dad did and he didn't die he died in 1997 how we persuaded him to let me take a semester <laughs> off school and go down with my crazy brother who was still a fugitive from Interpol and all this stuff. I have no idea. I mean, that Terrence was a pretty good talker and he just convinced him, oh, Dad, this this will be good. <laughs> this will be good for Dan. You know, he needs to get out and see some of the world and have some experiences. And I said, well, I don't know. All right. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's the way it worked. Yeah, so he actually sent a hundred and fifty dollars to me. He committed a hundred and fifty dollars a month, which was about what he was paying for my, you know, my college, uh, my room and board. This was nineteen seventy, so that was that was enough. So I had that money, which he sent to the U.S. embassy in in Bogota every month, and uh, we went down there, and you know, my father, I think. I mean, to his dying day, I think he had no real idea what was what went down. <laughs> you know, uh, did did I, he ever read
0: a, a, any of the books or attend uh, any of, of Terence's workshops? Don't
3: think so. I know, Well, he did. He yeah, he did. But at, at a couple of the workshops he he visited, Terence was not so much talking about. Luer and what happened to us and what happened to you know his little brother and all that he was more on a, a tear about society and culture and you know the kind of stuff he talked about. did Dad ever read the invisible landscape? I don't think so. Uh, he looked at it. did he ever read true hallucinations? about all I can say is I hope not. <laughs> Maybe he should have, because when I got back from La Terrera, you know, Terrence stayed down, but eventually I had to be, once I'd begun to calm down a little bit, enough to get on airplanes and open a can of tuna fish and things like that i was shipped back and what was presented to my father and and i guess our family was well you know dennis got sick down there and that was it you know but it wasn't really specified what the sickness was (laughs) i mean they thought oh malaria or something well no it was it was not that What can I say? (laughs) How did
0: you even come back from that and then readjust into society? Because that seems like such a, a culture shock.
3: You know, that's an interesting question. It was a huge shock. What happened was we had been downloaded what we understood to be all this information about the way the world worked and about, you know, how reality is actually made of language and and understandings and the way that the jungle regulated itself through chemical uh, messengers and all this, all of which is borne out, you know, by many things. It, It seemed like You know, insights at the time and subsequently, I mean, one can make a strong argument for this. But at the end of all this, I thought, well, you know, I mean, what we were thinking was, well, gee, we came down here and we thought we knew something. And what we know, what we know now, is that we didn't know anything. We were completely deluded in terms of our own estimation of what we thought we knew. I mean, Terence's reaction was, "Well, science can never explain this. We just need to reject science. That's all bullshit." And I, and I thought. No, we can't say that because we're not scientists. And what we need to do before we can reject science, we need to be able to do science so we have a basis of it to reject it or or so that we have, a, I guess, better appreciation for It's limitation. You know, I've always argued that science is very limited, but it has its uses. Before I left for La Torreira, my majors were anthropology and uh, religious studies, right? Because I was interested in shamanism and all that. Afterwards, I came back with all this, you know, sort of charge with this knowledge about nature. And I thought, my God, I have to study you know, chemistry, and quantum physics, and, you know, all these hard sciences. And so I came back and changed directions, because I felt that I couldn't really reject this body of knowledge that i would never really mastered, I kind of had to master it in some ways. And then as a platform, you know, understand, always with the idea, with the understanding that this is really pretty pretty limited in some ways but that's what I did I came back and I doubled down and sort of went from the social sciences into the biological sciences because we also had this you know as you know we had this crazy idea about the way dna worked and what we could do in the construction of This uh, artifact that we were trying to make using mushrooms and tryptamines and our voice and and all that stuff. We were trying to make, in fact, Justin, we were trying to make the first technological artifact, uh, nanotechnological artifact.
1: Kind of going off Justin's question a little bit, when you got back from... Your trip. Did you feel an isolation, or maybe more of an, a responsibility to share what you found out on your trip? And can you talk about a little bit about that compunction to pass along the message of the mushroom?
3: Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I didn't. In fact, quite the opposite. I was so shaken, and by that experience, and Terrence was too, I was so shaken by it that, frankly, I was happy to be in consensus reality and to have my feet on the ground, and I didn't want anything to do with any of that for a while. I mean, I was happy that I was, you know, sane, basically, and, and there was a lot of processing that went on. You know, I was I was happy to be in school, be studying, have a, a grounding and a focus in my life at that time. I mean, I didn't reject it. I couldn't do that, but I, I, I did not have the sort of messianic impulse that Terence did. We were very different in that way. He was totally convinced that we were absolutely onto something, and and he had created the time wave and had a specific rationale for what that was. And he was very messianic, you know, and I mean, literally wild eyed. And and I'm sort of like, I don't know. And And anyway, it's all too weird for me, you know, so I just want to go back and finish school. And that's what I did. But then we circled back on it, you know, we never really gave it up. We kept talking. And when Terrence... He stayed down there and then he came back that summer from La Churera by way of Florencia where he spent some time working out the the details of the time. And he came back and he was full of messianic fervor. And all of his friends were like, McKenna, calm down. You're way out of line here. You know, they were actually concerned for his sanity. And he was saying, no, 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 this is it. You know, we found the secret and all that. And, well, okay, you know, get back to us when you have some evidence. (laughs) And and so as a result (laughs) of that, you know, we we began to collaborate in refining these ideas, and, and we sort of said to each other, "Well, what in here is what in here might be valid? You know, is there really anything in all this that is a valid understanding, and what and of it is just?" basically delusion and the ravings of mad people and uh so we tried to sort that out and we started writing we started writing on what eventually became the invisible landscape as an effort to explain ourselves to the world as much as anything but explain ourselves to ourselves if you know what i mean what the hell was all this stuff that just kind of flowed in. That was how all that started. You know, we, we started to try and get it down on paper, and that was what the invisible landscape was. Was It was an exegesis, in a sense. It was, it was a sense to put an epistemological box, a noetic box, if you will, around these things that had happened to us, to try to explain it in some way that would be comprehensible to others, and, and hence, you know, to ourselves.
4: If you are, at first, lonely, be patient. If you've not been alone much, or if, when you were, you weren't okay with it, then just wait. You'll find it's fine to be alone once you're embracing it. We could start with the acceptable places, the bathroom, the coffee shop, the library, where you can stall and read the paper, where you can get your caffeine fix and sit and stay there, where you can browse the stacks and smell the books. You're not supposed to talk much anyway, so it's safe there. There's also the gym. If you're shy, you can hang out with yourself in mirrors, you could put headphones in. And there's public transportation, because we all gotta go places. And there's prayer and meditation, no one will think less if you're hanging with your breath seeking peace and salvation. Start simple, things you may have previously avoided based on your avoid being alone principles. The lunch counter, where you will be surrounded by chow downers, employees that only have an hour, and their spouses work across town, and so they, like you, will be alone. Resist the urge to hang out with your cell phone. When you are comfortable with eat, lunch, and run, take yourself out for dinner, a restaurant with linen and silverware. You're no less intriguing a person when you're eating solo desserts and cleaning the whipped cream from the dish with your finger. In fact, Some people at full tables will wish they were where you were. Go to the movies, where it is dark and soothing, alone in your seat amidst a fleeting community. And then take yourself out dancing to a club where no one knows you. Stand on the outside of the floor until the lights convince you more and more and the music shows you. Dance like no one's watching, because they're probably not. And, if they are, assume it is with best and human intentions. The way bodies move genuinely to beats is, after all, gorgeous and affecting. Dance until you're sweating, and beads of perspiration remind you of life's best things, down your back like a brook of blessings. Go to the woods alone, and the trees and squirrels will watch for you. Go to an unfamiliar city, roam the streets, there are always statues to talk to, And benches made for sitting give strangers a shared existence, if only for a minute. And these moments can be so uplifting, and the conversations you get in by sitting alone on benches might have never happened had you not been there by yourself. Society is afraid of alone, though, like lonely hearts are wasting away in basements, like people must have problems if after a while nobody is dating them. But lonely is a freedom that breathes easy and weightless, and lonely is healing if you make it. You could stand swathed by groups and mobs or hold hands with your partner. Look both further and farther in the endless quest for company. But no one's in your head, and by the time you translate your thoughts, some essence of them may be lost or perhaps it is just kept. Perhaps in the interest of loving oneself. Perhaps all those sappy slogans from preschool over to high school's groaning were tokens for holding the lonely at bay. Because if you're happy in your head, then solitude is blessed and alone is okay. It's okay if no one believes like you, all experience is unique, no one has the same synapses, can't think like you, for this be relieved. Keeps things interesting, life's magic things in reach. And it doesn't mean you aren't connected, the community is not present. Just take the perspective you get from being one person in one head and feel the effects of you. Take silence and respect it. If you have an art that needs a practice, stop neglecting it. If your family doesn't get you or a religious sect is not meant for you, don't obsess about it. You could be, in an instant, surrounded if you need it. If your heart is bleeding, make the best of it. There is heat and freezing. Be a testament.
0: You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Dennis McKenna. About his Kickstarter project, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. So, what was it like to collaborate with Terrence as he developed these ideas? Because it just in listening to so many hours of audio of his talks, and it just sounded like he had so much like psychological energy that he could just get on this tangent and just go forever. I mean, were you kind of like in the background critiquing his theories when you guys collaborated, or were you right up there with him going back and forth?
3: I'd say we were right up there together and we were going back and forth. I mean, eventually this was 1971 and 72 and three. I finished my degree in 1973 and, we were right in the middle at that time of writing The Invisible Landscape, and which was not called that at that time. It was called Shamanic Investigations in our own minds. Later, I, I came up with the title The Invisible Landscape. We were collaborating, and it was a dynamic collaboration. And, we, and I moved to Berkeley. At that time, Terrence had come back and was living in Berkeley. I moved out there so we could collaborate. We were together every day discussing it and so on and and the way it worked out was we kind of divided the labor you know i mean the second half of the invisible landscape is mostly about the time wave and the time wave is mostly terence's baliwick that was the thing that he was gifted you know as he was at la cherrera not sleeping for 14 days and like totally hyper vigilant mostly because he could keep an eye on me i wasn't sleeping either but i was completely off in the cosmos and i had this disturbing tendency to wander away from the camp so one of his motivations was to you know keep an eye on me I think he felt a certain amount of guilt because, you know, I mean, he'd been like trying for 20 years to, you know, drive his little brother crazy. And he finally succeeded. (laughs) And then he was feeling a little regret about that. The way it worked out, he was working out the mathematics and the details of the time wave. And I was more or less the biologist. I was working out. The explication of the experiment that we tried to, that we had conducted, although I certainly don't call it an experiment in in any conventional sense, it was not an experiment, but there are reasons why it can't really be called that but but i was trying to work out the the nuts and bolts of the biological basis you know do the beta carbolines intercalate into dna what happens when that happens can you you know are there is there a superconductive waveform set up in you know neural dna when you take mushrooms and make these certain sounds that seem to resonate with the Electron spin resonance and and all that of these things. So so we divided labor. The first part of the book is more or less, uh, I guess, the the mechanics, if you want to call it, the nanotech mechanics of the experimental lecturer. The second part of it was the time wave. What's the mathematical basis of that? This thing that we were gifted. This thing that we brought back from those dimensions. And uh, so it worked out. Over the years, you know, a lot of my own speculations, the biological speculations, I have had to reject in in the light of new knowledge. I mean, at the time... Nobody knew much about these neural receptors. So it was okay. You could say, well, the neural receptors in the neurons are made of DNA and, and these neurotransmitters intercalate into them. And I mean, other neurophysiologists were speculating on along those lines at the time. But since then, we know that's not true. You know, we know the receptors are proteins. We've completely sequenced all of them. We know they're, you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary structures. We know a lot more about these things. Other ideas were, seemed crazy at the time, but subsequent investigations have, shall we say, not invalidated them, you know, in the sense that you could say, Well, the idea that DNA can be superconductive. I mean, this is completely within the realms of biophysics. This is not a crazy idea. It appears that in certain situations and certain chemical environments, it may well be a superconductor as well as a semiconductor. and. You know the the resonances and the oscillations that DNA undergoes are important in its functioning. I mean, this is no molecular biologist is going to uh, have a problem with this these days. So, so right. who knows?
1: <laughs> yeah. Both Justin and I both have brothers, and you mentioned that Terrence looked out for you yeah. when you were on that 14 days of not sleeping. Did you guys ever have any disagreements or fights, or and how did, how did those go when you guys disagreed on a point, um, say, from the book or a shared recollection or something like that?
3: Before any of this happened, you know, when we were growing up together, you know, we had the usual sibling rivalries that all brothers have, you know, and we fought like demons about all kinds of things. But ultimately, I think we grew to respect each other. I mean, we fought like demons but also he was 4 years older and he was the most interesting thing going on and and you know i worshiped him i mean he, i thought he was really cool I and mean, he was but but that was all in the past when we were when we were writing the book and at La Torreira, I wouldn't say, we didn't really have conflicts, you know, we have we had very lively discussions, you know, about what was being written, and how should we put it, and, uh, you know, they might have looked like arguments, I mean, there were certainly a lot of raised voices, And but, you know, I wouldn't really call it a conflict. You know, that came later, that came much later, you know, because Terrence... Uh, you know, sort of. You know, he he made a lot of these suppositions, the the basis of his subsequent public career. You know, uh, talking about this in public and and claimed uh, right up to the very end that that basically we were right. You know, that basically we had it right. And I became increasingly skeptical. You know, not that I. Rejected it, but I was like, you know, dude, there are big holes in your assumptions here. You know that you're not examining, and uh, and so we had conflicts about it. You know, years down the line,
1: how would he react to you confronting him like that?
3: Not well. <laughs> <laughs> in the In the years that that followed, you know, there was an interesting dynamic because he basically decided to get out there with some of these speculations and ideas and that became the basis of his public appearances and speculations and and it became a shtick, basically. And it turned out to be a shtick that he could present very well. People resonated to it because, you know, he's such a fantastic speaker. I mean, I used to tell him, you could read the phone book up there and people would be hanging on every word. It's <laughs> not what you're saying. You know, it's not what you're saying that makes sense, that fascinates people, you know, because most of what you're saying it doesn't make any sense, but it's the way you say it. You know, it's this mesmerizing, hypnotic, voice that he had, his audience was very uncritical. They mostly listened. It was very rare for people to actually question what he was saying. And I was one of those that did question at times in public forums what he was saying. As a result, he would rather that I didn't show up there. because (laughs) I go to one of his seminars and I say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what you said just didn't make any sense. And it directly contradicts what you said 20 minutes ago, which didn't make any sense either.
1: <laughs> so that sounds but, just like my little brother <laughs> yeah,
3: So, what's going on? And he would just say, Well, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. He would seem on, you know. <laughs>
2: So I think the obligation on people such as ourselves, and I assume probably without exception, everybody in this room falls into the upper 5% of the Earth's population in terms of wealth, education, and freedom. Even if you're some poor pierced metalhead from the dark side of Mannheim, (laughs) you have a better situation than most people on this uh, planet, a better chance at actually reaching out toward the machinery that shapes reality and having an impact. Well, so then the question becomes or or for some people is, well, but I, I have nothing to say.
3: This is Dennis McKenna and you're listening to the Extra Environmentalist
0: In listening to all the the hours I have of of audio from his workshops and various talks, there definitely aren't a lot of very critical questions posed to him, and I wonder how he managed that when he went to workshops or did a talk when someone was very critical of him.
3: Well, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, he was was so good at saying what he said, and the concepts were so... You know, mind stretching that basically people were flummoxed, you know, in a certain sense. There were very few people who could take that analytical approach and and say, you know, wait a minute, what what are your assumptions here? This is crazy, you know, because people required time to process this, and when it's delivered in real time, it's like they're nodding their head, and oh, no, okay, I'm going to have to think about that one, you know, and they never really have a a chance to respond to it, you know, and that's where I was different because we had originated these ideas together and I'd lived with them and so I had had a chance to process a lot of this. When other people did, you know, later in Terence's career, when other people had looked at the time wave, for example, in detail, people who were actually mathematicians, which Terence wasn't, and begun to say, "Well, there are assumptions underlining this this model of reality you've created that that just don't uh, just don't stand up." He didn't take that criticism well, you know, and in fact. I don't know if you how familiar you are with the history of all this. There was a, a thing called the Watkins objection at one of Terence's seminars in in the mid 90s. This would have been about 1994 or something when he was giving seminars in Mexico at Palenque as part of the uh, as part of the Botanical Preservation Corps. With Jonathan Ott and others, there was a, a fellow who attended uh, that one of those conferences. I was not there, but he attended one of those conferences. He's a mathematician from Cambridge, and he was also kind of a jerk. He didn't really present himself as a sympathetic character at all. He stood up and and in the public forum, you know, basically denounced Terence and said. I've looked at this whole thing. I'm a mathematician and you've made a mistake in the way that you've calculated the wave. And Terrence was like, what? And so then he and Watson had a, an exchange that didn't turn out well, you know, for Terrence or Watson. I mean, uh, I never met Watson, but from what I understand, he was kind of a, a prick, but also a smart guy. And, uh, so Terence couldn't really answer that objection at that time, and so it really bummed him out. It bummed him out so much that after that conference, he went back to Hawaii, where he was living at that time. I think he went into a deep, depressive funk for quite some time and uh, it began to bother him a great deal that maybe this guy was right and that this was the beginning of the collapse of the time wave theory and he didn't know what to do about it because he didn't really have the mathematical skills needed to answer that objection. At the same time, it was difficult for him because by this time, it had become a shtick, you know, and his public appearances were were paying the bills. And so it was like, how can I come out in public and renounce, you know, my own theory? I mean, what am I going to do? I might actually have to get a job or something. (laughs) And, And so it bummed him out on a personal level. He never really... In some ways, he never really recovered from that in a certain sense. I mean, I think that he began to wonder if he himself was maybe a fraud. I mean, I don't know if he used that idea, but, uh, you know, he began to wonder if maybe he was really misrepresenting himself. And and we talked about this, you know. I told him that I thought that Watson had a point that he needed some help. He needed some help from a... Person, a mathematician, or someone else that could really look at this and dissect it. I thought there were other methodologies that could be applied to either validating or invalidating the time wave, trying to answer some of these questions that Watson had raised. But Terrence didn't seem to have the... He was not motivated enough to do that. I think he was basically, in some ways, afraid that it wouldn't work out. And he would have to admit in public that this was all bullshit. Or that some part of it was bullshit. And I, I used to say, well, this is the way science works. I mean, you develop a theory, you develop a model, and if you're a legitimate scientist... You try like hell to disprove the model. That's how it works. You develop a hypothesis and you try to disprove it. And he never did that. I mean, because it wasn't. In his personal interest to do that, in a sense, he wasn't a scientist and so he didn't, in some ways, he didn't really understand that that is what you do. But it, but it was like, well, if I if I undermine my own model, then what? You know, everyone will say I'm a fraud. Well, yeah,
1: then he, he undermines his whole career almost.
3: He, under, he undermines his whole career. So I understand his reluctance to do it. but And I wasn't saying to him that you know, you should abandon the model. I'm saying you should look hard at this model and you should try to get some solid answers to some of Watson's objections. You revise the model. That's the way science works. You All models are provisional, right? You never prove a theory. You can only not disprove a theory. It's an important distinction. There always may be new data, new information that comes Comes in that totally demolishes the theory or continues to support it. But theories and models, which is what theories are, are always evolving and changing and uh, accommodating new information. And if they don't, then they're abandoned and some new theory comes along. I mean, this is uh, Newtonian com- mechanics gave way to relativity. Relativity turned out to be a better model for describing the universe and that's how scientific progress happens you know but the sad part was in some ways I mean I think Terence felt at that time in his life which was many years later only a few, couple of years maybe four years before he died you know, I, I think he felt so threatened by this whole thing that instead of Buckling down and looking at the theory and saying, oh, what are the details? How can we revise it? What stands up and and what needs to be re-understood, it kind of degenerated into a personal attack on, on this poor fellow, you know? And by that time, there was a whole fan base and there was this whole group called the Novelty Group that was, you know, very much on the Internet, very excited about this and they all sort of piled on this guy so instead of answering the objection it turned into a kind of a a personal attack on the on the person unfortunate number one i think it i think it wasn't necessary i think there may have been you know responses that could have been made but but when you have to resort to that then that sort of shows that you're not really you know grappling with it because the guy wasn't Sympathetic person, particularly, uh, yeah, it was easy to do that. You know, it was easy to say, "Well, you know, you're just an asshole," and he probably was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from everything I can tell. But on the other hand, you know, even assholes can have a point if they, you know, if they have insight into it. So I don't. Right. I'm a skeptic about the time wave theory. If you haven't already figured that out, I, I you know, I have a lot of. I mean, in some ways, I think it's a brilliant sort of mathematical structure. You know, I think that Terence is, at the minimum, I think he's rediscovered uh, an ancient Chinese calendar. I mean, I'll give him that. Maybe that doesn't excite people, but on that level, you you can defend it. Yes, you can use this time wave as a calendar, no doubt about it. The whole question of, does it describe the quantum structure of space-time? Does it, does it uh, you know, specify a point, a singularity point in the future when the whole, you know, continuum collapses? No, I'm not so sure.
0: So that wraps up the first part of our conversation with Dennis McKenna. Any thoughts off the top, Seth?
1: Once again, it's very interesting to hear the insight that Dennis provides about his brother. We're going to get into that later. So we're going to make this quick. Uh, You guys can check us out at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter at XEnvironmental.com. And yeah, get ready to listen to the second part of our interview with Dennis McKenna.
0: We're going to talk uh, a little bit about some of the grand ideas that Dennis can relate to and weigh in on, given his perspective, and wrap up some of the loose ends from our uh, first half of the discussion. Stay tuned.
2: We need to produce, not consume media. Media is a huge issue. You can't escape it. So what are you going to do about it? The only solution is to drive it, to take charge. Otherwise, you will be poisoned by it. And and as more and more people are waking up to this, essentially, we are seeing, I think, a, a huge artistic revolution, a revolution in values that reaches into science, that reaches into politics, that reaches into every aspect of life, but that is coming from the imagination.